Gracious Lord, we turn to you now because of who you are. Thank you that we could uh, worship together and remind ourselves of your incredible love, your grace, your faithfulness to us. You are a rock. You are all we need. Lord, help us to know you and know you for who you are. Lord, speak to us through your word now and may, may you accomplish your purposes through it. In the words of one old saint, may you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, that we may all draw near to you through our time together. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. What a delight to have Nicholas and Danelle Ivans here. We've been praying for so long for little Camille and their adoption, and it's been how long? Over a year trying to get this adoption through, and Praise God, it was finalized, and they're here for a time with us, so I hope you'll have a chance to say hello to them this morning. Well, this is the Olympic season. Last week was the Olympic trials in track and field, and I love watching the athletes, the amazing feats that they can do because of the tremendous self-discipline that they've had to be able to do the things that they do and set new world's rec- world records over and over again and uh, the incredible discipline it takes to reach peak performance, every muscle in tone, every muscle uh, in shape. Jeannie and I have a relative who's, he was going for, I think his fourth, at least his third or his fourth Olympics in the 10,000 meters, didn't qualify this time, uh, this, this time, and that was disappointing, but... Uh, But just watching what he has to do to reach that peak performance is amazing, that discipline. But there's a couple parts of the body that those athletes can never really tame, can never really control fully, the scriptures tell us. One is the tongue, and the other is the heart. They can't be controlled, they can't be tamed. James tells us that no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of poison. And we're told that the heart in Jeremiah is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, we've been going through a series in the Ten Commandments in the last few weeks, and we've got up through number eight. Today we're taking nine and ten. And these two commandments really deal with these two parts of us, the tongue and the heart, our desires, the things we long for. And they're commandments that I think penetrate to the very depth of who we are and in our relationships with one another. As we seek to learn what it means to love one another, remember the first four commandments focused on loving God, And the last six focus on loving one another. So we're talking this morning about how to love one another, in particularly with our tongue and our heart. So let's look at the ninth commandment this morning. I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20, where it says this, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Literally, it's don't answer regarding a neighbor as a witness, when you're performing, when you're acting as a witness, into emptiness or vanity, something that is untrue or that doesn't edify. 
What he's saying is don't use your words to do harm to another person. Don't let your words be harmful. Of course, in their day, it was in a court of law. I think specifically the commandment applies to that first, where you were not to be a witness and lie about someone so that it did harm to their reputation or who they are. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 21 about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. You've heard the story. Ahab's this wicked king and he's looking out of his palace one day in the town of Jezreel. And he sees this vineyard and he thinks, wow, that would be a great place for a vegetable garden. I'm going to go get that for myself. And he goes and talks to the owner of it, Naboth, and says, hey, can I buy that from you? And he says, no, no, I can't sell it to you. It's, it's the inheritance that God's given my family. I'm not supposed to sell it. And Ahab goes back up on his bed and he's whining and he's sulking and he feels bad. And Jezebel comes in and she says, hey, what's wrong, Ahab? What's going on, buddy? And he says, well, I really, I really wanted this vegetable garden. My tomatoes would really grow well there. I know they would, but Naboth won't sell it. And she says, ah, don't worry, I'll take care of it. She throws a feast, invites them, invites Naboth, and then has two scoundrels there say, hey, we heard him curse God and king, a lie, of course, bearing false witness, of course. And they took him out and stoned him. And then Ahab took possession of the vineyard. Well, that's a direct example of doing this very thing, of bearing false witness. But what does it have to do with us? Well, I think the positive side of this commandment, not bearing false witness, every one of these commandments has a positive side. And I think this one is protect the reputations of those around you. We are called as believers to protect the reputations of others, our neighbors, and that means anybody who is around us. Martin Luther says, For honor and good name are easily taken away but not easily restored. James chap- chapter 3, verse 5, talks about the tongue um, as, is like a fire. I did firefighting for several years when I was in college during the summers. And one of the things that struck me is you can have a beautiful forest and these trees that have taken hundreds of years to develop, to become strong. And one little match can destroy the whole thing. You see, our words have power. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can destroy a forest, you can destroy a reputation with a single word, a single phrase. It's destructive. When I was a boy, when someone would call me names, I'd say, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But you know, that's a lie. I don't remember where I got hit with sticks and stones as a boy. It doesn't hurt anymore. I can remember phrases that were said to me that still hurt when I think of them. Words do hurt. Scripture tells us there's great power in what we say. They're powerful. And in America today, we seem to use our words to destroy people over and over again. It's part of our culture, it seems. The media, 
seems to do whatever they can. They've taken it on as their task, it seems, to do what they can to dig up dirt about anyone they can, any public figure. And their task seems to be to dig up enough dirt to bury the person for good if they can. So they're always looking for something in their past that they can use against them, that they can tell the world that they're doing wrong. There seems to be a delight in dragging others down. And you've seen it. If you're in the workplace, perhaps in your own family, how we use words to destroy the reputations of others rather than protect the reputations of others. Some of you are probably afraid not to go to the break room when everybody else does because if you're not there, you know you will be talked about. And that's true in all kinds of environments, not just the working world, but it's true about the church in some ways, isn't it? In fact, the New Testament describes several words that are used to talk about this problem of not protecting others' reputations. One word is gossip. Another is slander. These two words are in the lists of sins in Romans 1 and other places, 1 Corinthians, that are right alongside murder, hatred, adultery, and gossip and slander. You see, this commandment is an important one that we learn what it means. The word for gossip that's used in the New Testament means literally a whispering in the air, coming up to someone and whispering this little tidbit that you found. It also has can be used to talk about a twittering in the treetops, the birds twittering to one another. What a picture of gossip, isn't it? Sneaking up and whispering something to someone else. These juicy morsels about others that we whisper to somebody else. I had the opportunity to go snorkeling in Hawaii one time, Haunauma Bay, and a friend was with me and I was out there and he would throw bread and these fish would just come from everywhere and attack and fight for the bread. This, and uh, he would throw it and he finally was throwing it on top of me and they would climb up on me and they were just fighting. They weren't afraid to touch me. They didn't care what happened to me. They wanted that tidbit, that bread to eat. And isn't that the way gossip is sometimes? It feels so good sometimes to... It's an insidious feeling to have this bit of information about someone else. And then once you've got it, you want to pass it on to somebody else. It, doesn't, it, it feeds our arrogance, doesn't it? It makes us feel kind of superior to others if we have something on them. Especially if it's kind of secretive. Makes us feel superior, makes us feel part of the in-group. We've got this information about them and they don't know about it. We've got it. And it's this destructive secrecy that is part of gossip. The whispering in the ear. And notice, gossip and slander may or may not be true. The scripture doesn't distinguish whether the gossip about the person, what you're saying, is true or not. It says any kind of secret whispering that destroys another's reputation behind their back is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. It's gossip. Martin Luther says this about it. It is a common vice of human nature that everyone would rather hear evil than good about his neighbor. 
Those are called backbiters who are not content just to know, but rush ahead and judge. Learning a bit of gossip about someone else, they spread it into every corner, relishing and delighting in it like pigs that roll in the mud and root around in it with their snouts. Strong words. But how apropos to this whole picture of gossip, because it does destroy the reputations of others. Proverbs again, and there's numerous proverbs that deal with the tongue and how we gossip and how we use our words. 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. 17.9, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. That's gossip. New Testament also uses the word slander a number of places, a number of times. The American Heritage Dictionary defines slander this way. It's the utterance of defamatory statements injurious to the reputation or well-being of a person. Statements injurious to the reputation or well-being of a person. Again, it may or may not be true. The point isn't whether it's factual. The point is it harms another person's reputation and therefore it is slander. I took a position where I had a co-worker a few years back that um, when I showed up, several people came to me and said, oh, well, let me tell you some things about him. And as they began to feed me these things, I began to take them in, and it colored my view of that person. Many of the things they said were true, but it colored my view of that person so that as I began to work with him, I began to look with suspicion on everything he did. Is he a sinner? Sure. But when I began to treat him that way with suspicion, it's wrong. See, the slander affected me. And then, to my own discredit, I went out and began to slander him as well. And it actually took quite a while, several years, before God began to convict me through others that came to me and said, when you talk about this person, you slander them. And God began to speak to my heart and show me how horribly wrong that is, how evil that is, because we are called to protect the reputations of others, not to discredit them. That's what this commandment is all about. So how do we do that? How do we begin to change the way we talk about one another to a way that protects the reputations of others? First, I want to give you some practical ideas here. First, don't listen to gossip or slander. Period. (laughs) Don't listen to it. When someone comes to you and says, Hey, did you hear about... Say, whoa, I don't need to hear this. Have you gone to the person to talk to them about it directly? And if they have or haven't, if they say, well, no, then say, well, you need to go talk to them. And if they say, well, I have, but they wouldn't listen, then say, I still don't need to hear it. (laughs) I don't need to hear it. Secondly, if you find out that someone has sinned, go to them directly. Don't tell others. Don't, for the sake of prayer, say, 
tell your 15 friends and say, oh, I need prayer because I'm going to go talk to somebody about the sin so that everybody all of a sudden knows about this person's sin. No, you go directly. And in Matthew 18, it says, if someone sins, go to them in secret. Go to them alone and talk to them about their sin. In the church, we get so phony because we we think, we say, oh, I need prayer about it, so I'll tell so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And we've slandered and we've gossiped and we've violated the scripture when we do so. First, don't listen to it. Secondly, go directly to the person and encourage others, if they begin to talk to you about someone, to go directly to the person to deal with sin. And then thirdly, on the positive side, use your words to build up the reputations of others. Use your words to build up the reputations of others. Ephesians 4 puts it wonderfully, I think, 4.29, where Paul writes, Let no unwholesome word, and that word unwholesome means literally rotten, smelly, corrupt, disgusting, a word that's slanderous, that puts others down, in other words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So it says there, let your words be edifying. Ask yourself, will this build up the person and their reputation? Will this be according to the need of the moment? You have to listen and be aware of people's needs to be able to do that and say, will this help meet a need? And will it give grace to those who hear? Not condemnation, not rejection, not destruction of someone's reputation, but rather will it give grace, bring them closer to the Lord? Will it edify? Martin Luther again writes, A person should use his tongue to speak only good of everyone, to cover his neighbor's sins and infirmities, to overlook them. We're all sinful. But he says, use your words to speak good and to cover the sins of others and to cloak and veil them with your own honor. Our chief reason for doing so should be the one which Christ indicates in the gospel and in which he means to embrace all the commandments concerning our neighbor. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Do you want them to speak well of you? Speak well of them. Do you want them to come to you if they know of sin in your life, do the same to them. Again, Martin Luther, it's a particularly fine, noble virtue always to put the best construction upon all we may hear about our neighbor, as long as it is not a notorious evil, and to defend him against the poisonous tongues of those who are busy wherever they can pry out and pounce on something to criticize in their neighbor misconstruing and twisting things in the worst way. There is something about our flesh that wants to twist things so that we can look down on other people. It's damaging. And this is an area that I feel convicted in greatly because I struggle with it as well. But it says, use your words to build up the reputations of others. Someone came to me, someone I hadn't seen for 10 years, 
and came and said, you know, when I was struggling with that roommate situation 10 years ago, you came and you said this to me. It was one sentence. And he said, you know what, that changed my view of God and allowed me to grow in ways that I never had before. An encouraging word. What he didn't know is at that point in my life, I was struggling deeply with the sense that I don't think God can ever use me. And his words encouraged me in a profound, deep way, according to the need of the moment. It edified me. Words have power for good or for evil. Don't listen to gossip or slander. Go to the person if there's an issue. Use your words to build up the reputations of others. And remember, words are powerful. Words are powerful. You may have heard the story of the woman who was getting ready for a date. Her date showed up a little early. She was not ready. Her hair was a mess. She, very embarrassed, met him at the door, opened the door, and and uh, she didn't know what to say. She said, well, what do you think? He said, it looks like something beautiful is about to happen. <laughs> Similar story. Husband saw his wife come out in curlers. He says, what happened to you? She said, uh, well, I set my hair. He said, oh yeah, when's it going to go off? Both are kind of funny. One's encouraging. One is a slam. You see, words have power. So remember that they have power. And use your words to edify the reputations and build up others. I think the one reason we tend to do that is because we look at others and we compare ourselves to others. And we feel like, why aren't I like them? And so one thing we do is we use our words to try to drag the person down to our level, the way we feel. And so we slander and gossip them. But another thing we do is we long for being like them. We try to raise ourselves to them. We look up at them and we say, I want to I be like that. And that's the essence of the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. Let me read this to you. 5.21, Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This word, do not covet. Covet just means to desire what someone else has. It can be used in a positive way, but usually it's used in a negative way. To covet means simply to desire what someone else has, whether you do anything about it or not, whether you try to get it or not. You see, this is the only one of all the Ten Commandments that deals specifically and directly with the heart. It was easy for a Pharisee in Jesus' day to say, Hey, I can keep the Ten Commandments. You know, I, don't, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Of course, we've seen that there's a broader meaning to each of those. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Oh yeah? Those are all commandments that appeal to the heart. But this one directly does. And we're told in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul 
said, I was blameless before the law. I was doing it all right until I came to the Tenth Commandment. And in Romans 7, he describes that when he realized what the Tenth Commandment was saying, do not covet, and he tried not to covet, he realized he couldn't do it. He could not keep it because it was a matter of the heart. It wasn't just an outward thing that he could try to do through self-discipline. Our society is a materialistic, coveting society, isn't it? Advertisements work. Why? Because they appeal to our lust, our covetousness, our desire to have something else. And so that's what they do. They stir up these beautiful pictures of people's lives who seem together or fabulous athletes who make a lot of money or are beautiful actresses or actors and make you, make you want that particular item thinking that you'll be more like them if you just have it, whatever it is. Advertising works because it appeals to the covetousness in every one of us. We feel like we have to keep up with the Joneses. We have this insidious drive that I must have more. If I just have had this, I'd be happy, and especially what someone else has. If I just had that, I, I would be happy. The sense that I must have more. One of the richest men in America was asked, how much money does it take to be happy? He said, just a little more. <laughs> it's that law of diminishing returns. No matter how much you have, it's never enough to satisfy your soul because you weren't made to fill your soul with things. But something about our fallenness says, I must have X, whatever it is, to be happy. And in the church, we fall into this as well, don't we? We sit in the pews and we pay attention to what people are wearing around us and we pay attention to how they sing and we pay attention to how they serve God and we think, oh, if I just had enough money to buy this particular clothing, if I just had the spiritual gifts that he has or she has so I could sing like Julie or I could preach or I could do whatever, if I just had X, if I just had a wife like so-and-so who really loved me, if I just had the right house or a job or recognition, if I just had kids like so-and-so has, my life wouldn't be such a struggle. If I just had a certain ability, and we could go on and on, and we fall into this in the church, don't we? Thinking that somehow we need something else that someone else has. And so we compare. Well, this commandment says you can't even want what someone else has, or you violated this commandment. Why is that? I mean, you're not necessarily following through on it, right? Why is it wrong to even desire what others have? Let me give you some reasons why it's wrong. First and foremost, it makes us feel as if God's holding out on us, doesn't it? Makes us doubt His goodness. God, if you really love me, you would have given me a spouse like... You would have given me kids like, you would have given me kids and I can't have kids. You would have given me a job that's stable. You would have given me a different boss. You would have, and we begin, when we allow this coveting to live, we begin to doubt God. We begin to say, God, you're holding out on me. If you really love me, you would give me X, whatever it is. 
So we become bitter and angry at God. And like a friend of mine saying, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have let me be born in a family that was so cruel and abusive. So she began to doubt God and be bitter against Him. See, that's the first reason why we can't let desires, coveting, live. Secondly, coveting keeps us from loving others freely. You can't covet what someone has and still love them. You can't be comparing yourself and really love others from the heart. Like the story of Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament. They were brothers, but Joseph got the multicolored coat. And the brothers were all jealous. So they decided to kill him. They ended up selling him, of course, to the traitors who came through. But they were jealous and angry, and they could not in any way love their brother. There's no way you can do both. And you can't love others as God's called you to do if you're coveting what they have as well. Thirdly, why it's wrong to desire, even desire such things, is stated pretty clearly in James. Chapter 1 Verse 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or coveting. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Even the desire is wrong because ultimately, eventually, it will lead you to sin. It's the root that's planted that eventually springs forth into sin, James tells us. Just like Ahab and Jezebel. He wanted that vineyard, and it eventually led to sin. Destruction, even murder in his case. And then fourthly, James tells us again, James chapter 4, a fourth reason why we must deal with our desires for things that others have. Four verses 1 through 3. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust or covet and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. See, the fourth reason why you must not desire what others have, must not covet, is it brings destruction in relationships. It brings conflict. It brings quarrels. It divides us in the body of Christ. And if I read James correctly there, he says the source of every quarrel in the church, if you look at the root, the source of every argument, every quarrel, he says is coveting. Not being content with what we have and wanting what others have. It's the root from which every sin against a neighbor springs. So we become jealous and envy and it divides us. And so the person in the pew next to you becomes a competitor rather than someone on your team seeking to seek the Lord and praise Him and serve Him and follow Him. Instead, there's someone in competition with you because of what they have. So what's the antidote to coveting? How do we deal with this in our heart? Because it is so pervasive. How can we begin to root it out and change and begin to have a heart that can truly please the Lord? Three words to give you. First, contentment. 
You're familiar with Philippians 4, 10 through 13, or 11 through 13. Paul writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says there's a secret to contentment. And if you learn to be content, you will not covet. What's that secret? Well, I'd put it this way. The secret of contentment is knowing that God and what He chooses to provide for me is enough. It's enough for me to be whole. It's enough for me to be content. It's enough for me to be godly. God Himself and whatever He chooses to provide for me is enough for me. That's all I truly need. Not necessarily what I want, but it will be what I need. And as we learn to grip that truth and say, God, you are enough, and the family you have given me is enough. The spouse you've given me is enough. The job you've given me is enough. The abilities you've given me are enough. The spiritual gifts you've given me are enough. Whatever you've given me, it's enough to be godly, Lord. You are in control, and I will trust you. I will be content with what you've given me. It's the secret of contentment. So learn to grip that truth. Secondly, the second antidote to coveting is the word thankfulness. The New Testament is absolutely filled with commands to be thankful. Why is that? Because I think thankfulness is the greatest antidote to coveting. When you truly cultivate a heart of thankfulness, you cannot covet. Ephesians 5, and I could look up a lot of verses, but I'll just read one. Ephesians 5.20 is in a text that's describing what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And it says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Always giving thanks for all things. Even this trial, Lord. Even my failed marriage. Even the fact that I can't find a spouse and I have to stay single. Even though my kids are rebellion, I'm supposed to give thanks for that. That's what it says. Somehow knowing that God in His wisdom is giving you exactly what you need to become the person that He wants you to be. And therefore, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but you can say, Lord, somehow in this, thank you. Thank you you're in this with me. Thank you you have a purpose. Thank you that you're using this for good. Thank you, Lord, for what I have. I've been doing a personal experiment in the last few months because it really struck me how little I was giving thanks, how much I was discontent with what God had given me. And so I've really been trying to cultivate a thankfulness about everything that comes my way. I fail a lot, but it really has been a change in my attitude. I have really noticed a much deeper sense of somehow God being in control and using things for good and a deeper sense of contentment and thankfulness in my life. I encourage you to do the same. It's an antidote to coveting. And then thirdly, I would say hope. Put your hope in heaven. The truth is, 
We're people that are created with great longings. And coveting comes out of a desire to have those longings fulfilled. And so we begin to think, well, they look happy, and maybe if I had what they have, I'd be happy. And so we begin to covet what others have. But the truth is, nothing on earth can truly satisfy our longings. We are heavenly beings created for heaven. And therefore, earth will always have an ache about it, an emptiness about it. And when you begin to put your hope in heaven and say, Lord, yeah, they may look happy, but you know what? Even if I had that, it wouldn't truly satisfy me because I'm made for more. I'm made for heaven. And as you begin to cling to that and long for heaven and put your hope there, then you'll be free from the coveting that tends to dominate us and control us. Well, those are the Ten Commandments. We've spent five weeks on them. To read on in Exodus 20, the first giving of the law, or in Deuteronomy 5, the second giving, you'd see that the people's response was one of, Lord, it's too much. We're overwhelmed. We can't pull it off. God, we can't handle being this close to you. And they say, Moses, you stand between us and God because we can't stand being close to God. He's too righteous. He's too holy. He's too powerful. There's too much required. And you know what? I hope to some degree that's your response to the last five weeks. That you have a sense of being overwhelmed that, Lord, your word, what you ask of me, your righteousness is too much. I can't do it. So that you will turn to the grace of Christ because the law is too much for us. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need the cross. And I hope your response is one, first of all, being overwhelmed, but secondly, being stunned and overwhelmed by the grace of God. That though you've broken the Ten Commandments, every one of them, He died for you. So that you could be forgiven, come into an intimate relationship with Him. And not only that, but He comes to live inside you when you accept Him as Lord and Savior to begin changing you from the inside out so that you can begin living out the Ten Commandments as you humbly submit to Him and His work in your life then suddenly the Ten Commandments become not what condemns you, but what you begin to anticipate God working out in your life. That you begin to use your words for good. They begin to care for other people and protect what they have and protect their reputations and not covet what they have, but build them up and encourage them and love them from the heart. God so longs to know us. And the Ten Commandments are meant to draw us to Him so that we might delight in what He is doing in our lives and our hearts. I encourage you to cultivate thankfulness, especially for the cross. As Paul said, and he knew the Ten Commandments well, and he knew he couldn't pull them off, he said, may it be that I should never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand before you needing a Savior, and we thank you that you are 
the Savior. And may we never boast, Lord, of what we can pull off or what we can accomplish. We are not righteous. All our righteousness is its filthy rags. But may we boast in you in what you have done, in forgiving us on the cross and in beginning to make us like you. Help us to gaze into your very face that we might be transformed from glory to glory into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.